When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This Slate TV Club podcast is sponsored by the new ABC series, American Crime. This March, one crime will affect so many lives. From the Oscar-winning screenwriter of 12 Years a Slave comes the year's most extraordinary drama. Don't miss American Crime, premiering Thursday, March 5th, 10, 9 central on ABC. Slate Plus members get early access to our TV Club podcasts about Better Call Saul immediately following the broadcast on AMC. If you're not a Slate Plus member and you want early access... Sign up at slate.com slash Saul Plus. The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of Better Call Saul we're discussing before you listen to this podcast. Lights start a blank and those handcuffs click. You know who to call and you better call quick. Saul, Saul, you better call Saul. You'll fight for your rights when your back's to the wall. Stick it to the man, justice for all. You better call Saul. Hello and welcome to Slate's TV Club podcast about Better Call Saul, the new AMC drama inspired by the series Breaking Bad. I'm June Thomas, editor of Outward, Slate's LGBTQ section, and I am talking today with a man who looks spectacular in a sassafras glow. In fact, he's looking just like Tony Curtis in the bath scene in Spartacus, Seth Stevenson. Actually, Seth, I don't really know what you look like because you're actually in another state, aren't you? Where are you? I'm in Colorado. I'm in Crested Butte, Colorado, working on another story. I'm actually fairly close to Albuquerque. Well, <gasps> compared to New York, I'm fairly close to Albuquerque. So, so in fact, I'm wearing a space blanket because I can just I can feel the rays. And so, uh, you know, being this close to it, I, I just I've encircled myself in reflective space blanket. But June, I, I hear that you have picked yourself up a super 170 Tasmanian wool suit in Hamlindigo blue. Hamlindigo sure. blue really picks up the brown in my eyes. And, and, and I tell you, the mother of pearl buttons, not give me any of that plastic crap I said to the tailor, and it looks spectacular. I love that club collar, by the way. Oh, my God, that's a really good look. Well, I can't wait to get back and see you, but we'll have to do this remotely for now. Okay. Um, I just want to mention before we go on that Slate Plus members get early access to these podcasts, which are posted right after the AMC broadcast concludes at 11 p.m. on Mondays. If you're not a member and you want to hear these episodes right away, sign up at slate.com slash Sol Plus. Okay, today we are talking about episode four, which was called Hero. Um, let's begin by listening to a clip from the show. We're going to hear the scene in which Kim, um, Saul's very good friend and sort of love interest, comes to the nail salon where he lives to deliver the cease and desist letter from Hamlin and also just to kind of give him a talking to, it seems. I can advertise, can't I? 
What, do I have to clear everything past the great and powerful Yes, you can Howard? advertise, Jimmy, all you want. That billboard is not advertising. That is a declaration of war. Declaration of war. That's... It's right at Hamlin's exit. You know he drives by it every day. It's business. I'm building a brand. You're ripping off a brand. There is nothing original in that ad. It certainly doesn't represent Jimmy McGill. Hey. All right, now, he fired the first shot, okay? Trying to keep me from using my name, my own name, Kim. I get that. But this? You're better than this. I'm better than this. Yeah. I'm better yeah. than this. I'm better. You are. Well, you're better than that schmuck Hamlet. Oh, come on, you, Jimmy. You, come you on. could work anywhere. You could be somewhere where they appreciate you, you know, where they see how valuable you are. Well, I don't know. Maybe they care about you. Forget it, okay? If Hamlin wants to come after me, he knows where I am. I'll be ready. Guns blazing. So it seems like Jimmy has something up his sleeve here. And a lot of this episode, I mean, we, here we had Kim talking to, to Jimmy about uh, where the lines were, what, was, what he should be doing and shouldn't be doing. And a lot of this episode was Jimmy figuring out where the lines were for him. Um, we had the flashback at the beginning to the old Slippin' Jimmy days where he's running a con on a guy in an alley. Then we had the Kettleman's offering him a bribe and him deciding whether he wanted to take that. And mm-hmm. if he did take that, what the rules were going to be for him, how he was going to conceive of himself uh, if he was taking bribe money. And then we had him sort of tweaking the uh, HMM, or rather HHM, um, with uh, his copying the look of Hamlin with that suit, that 170 Tasmanian Wolf suit, and the billboard with the exact same graphic logo. And then finally we had another scene with Chuck in the off-the-grid house mm-hmm. um, where uh, he tells uh, Chuck he's been working hard and that's why he's doing well. And then Chuck runs outside in a space blanket to go find the local Albuquerque Journal and discover that, in fact, Jimmy has run another sort of con in order to get a lot of attention for himself. Or, well, I mean, Chuck doesn't know for sure that he's done a con, but Chuck knows the old Jimmy well enough to immediately assume that that has happened. And I think you're right that that was really, even though there were things that happened in this show, there was literally plotting. Mostly it was about uh, Jimmy's moral code and, and kind of figuring out what his rules for living were. But he definitely has a code. Um, I guess that brings us to some listener email that we got. Saul's made a few mistakes, and it seems that we have two. And I know that time when I said that Albuquerque was next to Zimbabwe on the map, I was also a little bit wrong there. But what's the other stuff that we have uh, erred in? Well, for one thing, I said that the time period, that the the bulk, I mean, this show does jump around in time periods, but the time period that the bulk of the show is happening, the sort of the current day of the show, I had said it was 2001. And the reason I said that is the very first scene we saw of this time period was was Jimmy popping in a videotape in the courtroom, and the videotape was timestamped 2001. That's when those knuckleheads engaged in some necrophilia with a corpse's skull. And, uh, and so, because I saw that timestamp of 2001, I just sort of assumed the show was in 2001. But listeners have pointed out to us that later on, when Jimmy gets a check from the courthouse to pay uh, his public defender salary, uh, it's dated 2002. So apparently some months have progressed since those knuckleheads um, had sexual relations with that human skull. And it is 2002 is the setting of the show. So that's one error. Another error I made was that I said that uh, in that black and white cold open in the pilot, in the very beginning of the show when he's the Cinnabon manager in Omaha, I'd said that he was drinking Drambuie. And he was, however, he also had added, I guess, scotch to it, and he'd made a rusty nail, as multiple listeners pointed out to me. I guess a lot of rusty nail fans out there. He was drinking a rusty nail, so we've got that clear now. Anything else, June? What else have we messed up? 
Um, we also said that the show aired on Sundays, which it did the first episode, but it's actually a Monday at 10 p.m. episode. Um, and then we got another letter uh, from a listener called Alan Thomas, which, as Alan Thomas knows, that was my father's name, so it always freaks me out a little bit when I get um, correspondence from him. Uh, but he's a keen listener to Slate, uh, to the Slate podcast. And he wrote with a more, not so much a correction as kind of to contradict us or just to sort of challenge us a little bit. Apparently, we keep saying that Saul has no morals at all, and he says it bugs him. Never more so than when you contrasted Saul to Jesse Pinkman, which grated enough to impel me to find your email address and complain. That email address, by the way, is podcasts at slate.com. Granted, Alan Thomas says, Saul participated willingly in criminal conspiracy, which is why I never argued the point previously. But if that's the definition for no morals, then why does Jesse Pinkman get a pass? I think that is a really interesting question. You know, clearly, as we've said in every one of these recaps, there are a lot of kind of callbacks, if you like, or, you know, presentiments, however you want to describe them, of Breaking Bad. This time, um, you know, the the con in the cold open actually, for me, was quite reminiscent of the later Saul Goodman because um, he was working with a big guy. Uh, it was the guy from Getting On this time around who was his accomplice as the passed out dude singing Smoke on the Water and... Uh, uh, you know, losing his watch. Uh, and later he works with Huell, the big guy, uh, big quiet guy, who uh, <laughs> I guess essentially planks on a million at some point. But anyway, um, but I'm. it's very clear to me, I mean, one of the big themes of this show is where is Jimmy slash Saul's moral compass? And in this episode, it was really clear to me that he's trying to go straight. He's really influenced by Chuck. Either he wants to prove to Chuck that he really can go straight, that he can let go of his old ways. But he's constantly being forced to compromise either by threats or by just not acknowledging that he, that going straight will not be a profitable path for him, that he'll always be doing salon living if he does that. But the thing about Saul is that he really understands that what he's doing. He knows when he's being honest and when he's being dishonest. And we saw here that like the Kettlemans, they apparently are in deep denial that they have done anything wrong. Yeah, that, well, I, I love Mrs. Kettleman's cheerful manner when she urges him to take a bribe. She's like, she's like, oh, you want us to give this money back? We're not going to give this back. Mm-hmm. She's kind of like a, a cheerleader for slipping morals. But yeah, he's, you know, that decision, we cut to commercial, um, and we don't know if he's taken that stack of money from her or not when we cut to commercial. And then we come back, and there's that great scene, sort of, for me, the fulcrum scene of the episode, where he's sitting at his desk in, in the back of the nail salon, and we've got uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, a sort of jazzy version of the Battle Hymn of the Republic playing on the soundtrack. And he's sitting there, and then he yanks into view, into frame, the stack of money <laughs> that he has, in fact, accepted from the Kettleman's. He sort of pulls it from the front of the desk into frame in the middle of the desk. But then what he does, so we see, oh, he's taking the money. He's that kind of guy. He's going to take a bribe. But then the next thing he does is he tots it all up for tax purposes. And he divides it into buckets of, you know, this was for travel expenses. This was for research. This was for consulting. So he is maintaining some sort of code. Like he's going to pay taxes. He's going to keep books. He's going to keep a careful accounting of this money. Uh-huh. But he isn't above taking a bribe um, if it's going to help him out. And then he says, you know, upon this rock, I build my church. And that rock is ill-gotten cash. So that's what he's going to build his law firm on, is, is this idea that of, of taking money from criminals, but then you know trying to maintain some sort of moral lines for himself. Yeah. And, yeah the, and the close of the episode was him with Chuck 
And Chuck just, again, painted as this completely incorruptible figure where his house isn't even connected to the power line, to the power grid. You know, he doesn't have electricity. He, he doesn't have a refrigeration. He won't talk on a cell phone. He's just, he is untouched by the filthy outside world. And so talk about a moral guidepost. I mean, this is the guy where the Jimmy comes to visit him. And it's sort of symbolic that Jimmy puts his cell phone in the mailbox, and Jimmy becomes kind of a different person when he enters Chuck's house. And that's where Jimmy knows um, there's no bull. Uh, well, except there was some bull. <laughs> he, didn't, he, didn't bring, he didn't bring in Chuck's newspaper. He didn't want Chuck to know about his billboard con. But, um, you know, he just he can't bring himself, I think, to, to completely lie uh, to, to Chuck. And, right. and so Chuck will be one of his moral guideposts. And the other moral guidepost seems to be Kim, as we heard in that scene uh, at the nail salon when they're getting in, they're sitting in the massage chairs. And, and Kim's the other person who tells Jimmy, um, hey, this, this, that's not who you are. You're better than that. Um, before we go on, I just want to take a moment to hear from this week's sponsor, which also happens to be a TV show. Uh, this March, it's time to experience American crime. One offense will send shockwaves through a community like never before, shattering families and igniting a media frenzy in this powerful, thought-provoking and timely series. From the Oscar-winning screenwriter of 12 Years a Slave comes the year's most extraordinary new drama. Felicity Huffman and Timothy Hutton star in American Crime. It premieres on Thursday, March 5th at 10, 9 central on ABC. I have to say, I had a chance to watch the pilot of this show and I was really um, sort of grabbed by it. It has quite a cable vibe. You don't really, nothing is over-explained. It's got a big cast of characters and the way that they interact is is really interesting. It's a show that um, I'm very interested to it's probably the the broadcast show that i'm most interested in uh in the of the new shows so that's american crime which premieres on thursday march 5th at 10 9 central on abc well june we're at episode four here and we're starting to see better call saul develop some of its own motifs as well as borrowing some from from breaking bad so we've noticed now that the credit sequence changes every week. And last week it was this sort of femme femme fatale with painted fingernails uh, ashing her cigarette into the scales of justice. And then this week it was a drawer full of cell phones being shut, suggesting some sort of illicit activity that requires multiple burners, as we call them. Um, I thought uh, that I I really like these little credit sequences. They're these little visual vignettes that help capture the mood of the show. And I'm looking forward to seeing those change throughout the season. The other thing is that the episode titles, I'm not sure if if listeners are um, all aware of what the titles have been in these episodes. The first episode of the pilot was called Uno. Then we had Mijo. Then we had Taco. And this week's episode is called Number three wasn't Taco. It was Nacho. Nacho. My yeah. mistake. I, I mean, but you see the theme. So Uno, Mijo, Nacho, and now Hero uh-huh. are all two-syllable words ending in O. And we'll, it'll be interesting to see how long they can carry this on. Are, they, is it gonna, are we going to get like a dingo episode? Maybe? <laughs> oh, my God. I hope. And I hope it eats somebody's baby. No. Django. Bobo for, for David Brooks enthusiasts. <laughs> Oh, no. Um, But it's fun. You can see that the show is having fun, and you can see that it's very detail-oriented, that Vince Gilligan loves his little Easter eggs and his details and these little puzzles for people to delight in. And so that's that's something that's carried over from Breaking Bad. And I think the hardcore fan, the person who wants to be aware of everything that's going on, will will have a lot of fun with this. Um, The other thing we've seen is um, these time jumps. Mm -hmm. The show has been jumping around. So this week, our our open again was back to the Slip and Jimmy days, or or the Saul Good days, however you want to call them, where he's the con guy, I guess, in, in Chicago, I think. And uh, 
And uh, I like that the show jumps around in time. I hope it will continue to do that. And June, we'd wondered um, after the pilot episode with that cold open in Omaha and black and white where he's the Cinnabon manager, if they'd ever go back to that time period. Mm -hmm. And I really hope they do at some point. I hope this show jumps around and every once in a while they throw in a wild card where he's back in Omaha and somebody's, you know, he's worried that someone's going to find him or he's trying to make a life there or something. I hope the show jumps all over the place in time because that makes it really rich and interesting for me. Yeah, I mean... It's a great mark of the Vince Villigan uh, productions. Those cold opens really are separate little movies that then do inform. Uh, they, you know, they give background to the characters. They really kind of beef them up. So I definitely enjoy them. Um, I thought, honestly, that this one's went on a little bit. I mean, after we'd established it was a con, I'm not sure that we truly needed to spend quite so much time you know, with his accomplice. That felt like it was kind of stretched out. Um, you mean the bong scene? Yeah, like, okay, it's his buddy. But, and you know, again, I guess maybe it's a an indication both that Saul is a good friend um, and is a nice guy to hang out with. I mean, that that feels actually kind of important. But at the same time, it also feels that Jimmy slash Saul also always needs to be under pressure. Um, you know, again, he always seems to be trying to go straight. But, for example, when Nacho threatened him, you can see that, as much as Jimmy feels probably safe because he did get him out of that jail cell, Nacho does still think that he betrayed him. So, you know, he's not he's he's got that sort of, you know, the breath on the back of his neck of, of feeling that, you know, Nacho could come back to him. Uh, and, you know, there's just he it's very hard. And I think probably for the sake of the show, impossible for Jimmy to ever truly relax. So, Jim, this was my favorite episode of the season so far. Um, I really thought the show came together here. And we talked about before how the opening episodes, they had moved kind of slowly. They took their time unfolding. And I really respected that. I liked that they did that. You know, I read an article, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal just the other day, about how uh, syndicated reruns now are being sped up. So if you watch a rerun of Friends, they're speeding it up a little bit by a few percentages. And you can actually hear the voices are a little bit higher because the show is sped up. And they're doing that so they can fit in more commercials. Um, and so everything seems to be going faster, faster, faster. But this show was willing to really take its time at the outset and let things unfold, let the characters develop. And I think that's starting to pay off now where these characters have real depth to them. We're seeing Saul uh, as a young person. We're seeing this relationship with Kim. For me, that was um, a great scene. The two great scenes in the show were, were Saul uh, or Jimmy or Saul. I go back and <laughs> forth here. I really need some resolution on this. Uh, him taking, you know, revealing that he'd taken a stack of money and totting it up. And that said a lot, a lot about, uh, about how he views himself and what he's going to be like uh, going ahead with this venture. And then the other great scene was in the massage chairs with Kim, where we saw that these are two adults with kind of a sweet relationship. And there's some intimacy there and maybe a little sexual tension. But they're grown-ups. They have respect for each other. They're two smart, capable people. Um, they have a lot of kindness and warmth between them. And I love that. I think their relationship... Um, is really promising, and I'd like to watch more of that. And I also really like that actress a lot. I think she did a great job with that role. Um, so I'm really excited about the show right now. I'm excited to keep watching, and uh, it's only 10 episodes this season. I wish it were longer. I agree, Seth. Um, I am getting into it more. I'm, I'm keen to find out where they're going. I want to know like what the arc is going to be for this first season. But can I just ask you a question, Seth? On Saturday, do you want to go see The Thing with me? 
<laughs> yes, June, I do. What a sort of fan, what a sort of fantasy dream, you know, for the Vince Gilligan fanboy, yeah. a beautiful, accomplished woman with incredible earning potential who wants to go see, you know, classic John Carpenter movies. <laughs> you know, when you go out, like like horror movies about these implacable monsters. But of course, of course, a beautiful blonde lawyer lady. That's what she wants to see with you. That that was a bit of a fantasy, but I I love it. I mean, I'll take it. Yeah, I want to go. I want to go to see the thing with Ken for sure, and you, June. Of oh, course, thank you, you, thank you. Uh, yeah, that was very much a smoking gum moment. I thought. I believe that's it for this week's podcast. But before we go, our producer Joel Meyer has something to say. Well, June and Seth, you know that while you guys have these great conversations on the podcast, I usually am just surfing the internet. <laughs> and so I looked up what the name of the next episode of Better Call Saul is. So, spoiler alert: we're going to reveal that at the very end of today's podcast. So, if you don't want to hear it. It's going to be like the last few seconds of the show, okay? So just heads up. Oh, my goodness. I've got goosebumps. Me too. I can hardly wait. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to this late TV club podcast. Join us next time when we'll talk about Better Call Saul Episode 5, whose title we don't yet know, but Joel will reveal <laughs> to us very soon. And check out our other recent TV podcasts about Downton Abbey, The Walking Dead, and The Americans. Just go to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Our producer is Joel Meyer, who will tell us now the big reveal. The name of the next episode of Better Call Saul, according to IMDb, is Alpine Shepherd Boy. Uh, Breaking the trend. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) Now, I've been burned by IMDb before, but that's, that's my source and I'm sticking to it. All right. Thank you so much, Seth. Have fun out in the West. Thanks, June. Looking forward to talking with you next week. All right. Your customers are gone and your store is on the rocks. Spread around the gas because it's time to torch the stock. But you got to move quick before you send your own hair. Who knew there was a homeless guy sleeping in there? Better call Saul. Better call Saul. Better call Saul. The FBI finds kids trapped in your creepy van.